Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Fantasy. I'm your host, A.E. Lanier. Today, I will be speaking with Aparna Verma about her new novel, The Phoenix King. The novel takes place in the desert kingdom of Ravance as war brews on its borders and as the king is about to step down. The story follows an assassin exiled but struggling to return home, as well as both the king and the heir to the throne. This is Aparna's debut novel, and she is here with us now. Hi, Aparna. It's great to have you. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. Could you start with telling us a little bit about the Phoenix King and just how that story came about for you? Yeah, um, so the Phoenix King, um, I've been kind of playing with the idea of the book for over 13 years. (laughs) Um, And it evolved over time, of course, but I didn't really get serious, quote unquote, about the book until March 2020. When, you know, we were all locked in and there's nothing really else to do. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write the damn book at this point. Because uh, it was just nibbling away in my mind. <clears throat> so I started it off uh, as more of an exploration of like all the darkness that we were seeing in the world. Specifically um, how political leaders were manipulating emotions, politics, religion to you know, put their own political agendas forward, you know, for their own political gain. Um, and that's something that the Phoenix King really grapples with, specifically religion and how religion can be used as a tool and a weapon sometimes, despite it being a also a resource. Uh, it gives solace to people who, who believe. And so the, all the characters have a complicated relationship with their faith some believe in it some believe in it because of tradition because of homeland because they were taught to believe in it some people used to believe and then learn better or learn worse depending on your point of view um so it, it, it you you see their journeys of grappling with their with their faith and how some of them try to break away to to quote unquote get some get freedom to say like I will not let fate or destiny or the gods control my journey on you know in this world while others kind of buy into or believe that you know what these gods are doing is something that is holy that is that the world needs and I draw power from that I draw stability from that I draw peace from that and so it, it for me, I just I just find faith and religion to be very interesting and how different people, individuals, um, interact with it and relationships with it. So you see that in the Phoenix King for sure. So yeah, absolutely religion is sort of at the heart of this and those different and changing relationships to faith are super central for really all of our main characters. Yes. Government is also a really important part, monarchy specifically. We have two people that are members of the royal family. The third was essentially like a child soldier that was raised to overturn monarchy. 
And there's a lot of conversation about monarchy specifically as a government system. Can you talk a little bit about that and its role in the book? Yeah, so the Kingdom of Robins uh, basically operates with a religious throne uh, in, in that it's believed that the royal family comes from this, you know, long lineage from the founder of the kingdom. And that founder was blessed by the power of the phoenix, their god, to uphold this throne. And the, the, the history of the world is that there, the phoenix has a prophet. And in the last, in the last coming of the prophet, the prophet burned down the sinners and made Ravans, which was once a beautiful, bountiful forest, into a desert. And this happened, you know, over centuries. It didn't happen overnight. Uh, and their founder, um, the original Ravans, the original Ravani, he came in and made a home in the desert. And so his followers finally found peace because their his god was able to protect them from all the warring kingdoms. So it was almost like a like a, like a, a haven for them where they could, you know, practice their faith of the Phoenix without being like, you know, persecuted because at that time, if you believed in the Phoenix, you believed in their vengeful, destructive prophet who had basically killed everyone um, beforehand. Uh, so the and Leo and Alina come from this idea of like, you know, we were blessed by the God. That's why we are ruling. Um, and we come into the book at a time where Alina must now rise to power. She's about to be 25 sons. It's a uh, tradition. And we see Leo, her father, not coming to terms that he has to give up his power, that he has to give up the throne. And then it's his child. So, of course, he feels, you know, it happened to him. His father had put down the throne to him. But you feel a little bit of resistance on his part and he cloaks it behind i need to protect this kingdom because a prof a new prophecy came that a new prophet's coming so he hides behind layers of so-called politics and religion so his daughter to distance himself from his daughter and not necessarily give her the keys and the reins to the throne like he's he's trying his hardest like no i need to be here i need to guide you uh, because without me you won't be able to run this kingdom that succession strategy where the monarch changes not because the old king dies but because the heir reaches a certain age is really unusual and was really interesting and complicated that father-daughter relationship a lot as well in really engaging ways can you speak about that decision to make the throne work that way yeah so i think it's overdone sometimes in fantasy of like oh, the old king is dead, or he got murdered and assassinated. So here you go. Here's like the next, you know, person on the butcher's block, a.k.a. the throne. So I wanted to change it a little a little bit of like, you know, living in the States and, you know, we live in a, in a democracy where like either the, the president, you know, at most can only serve eight years, um, two terms, eight years, and then you're done, you're out. And I wondered, like, what if we apply that to a monarchy? But, of course, we're going to need a little bit more time. You can't just do eight years of new king. Like, that would be a little too much. So I thought, you know, until the heir turns 25 years of age. So it's not necessarily you rule for 25 years. It's whenever you have that kid, the time starts ticking. The timer starts ticking. So it's, it's, it's complicated in, like, how the rulers kind of time 
when they have their kids. Like Leo has his kid like later on, has a Leo later on. He only has one child, which is purposeful, so he didn't have bickering children to fight over the throne. Um, but I think in a way it makes it more complicated and, and interesting as for me as a writer because you have a tradition where like, okay, this person that I'm mean, going to take this throne and this heir who has been bred basically to know politics, to know the religion of the world, to basically be born and raised to do this one job and you are resisting that. You are resisting the culture and the tradition that you say you uphold in your kingdom, that you are the shining beacon of. But personally, you 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 are resisting. You you're, you know you don't want her to take the throne quite yet because you don't want to be deemed, um, and, you know, not useful. And so for me, that I I, I wanted to make that twenty five term of the heir because I wanted that conflict of Alita and Leo to really, you know, raise the stakes of like. Will he actually give the throne to her? Will she actually take the throne and, you know, res- you know, assume power? Or, you know, will Leo continue to resist and not teach her, you know, the the promise of the throne, which is how to wield fire? So Alina is very concerned about taking power about fire, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, but she also is, during this, becoming engaged as well and is thinking about royal marriage and... um basically like continuing this line which is something that's necessary if you're going to have a hereditary sort of leadership but i feel like a lot of times in u.s stories we treat that responsibility with like a lot of contempt or we dismiss it so it was interesting to see a young monarch that is like also thinking about um, or a young like up-and-coming monarch who's also thinking about the next line and like getting married and all that stuff can you talk a little bit about royal engagement yeah so i uh, uh, you know, the Phoenix King is Indian inspired. And I think when the West thinks about Indian stories, or things about Indian in general, there's always like the topic of arranged marriages just come up. They just often do. I remember growing up as a kid when we, you know, in world history class in sixth grade, when we learned about India, my friends would ask, are you going to get an arranged marriage? Like once they learned that arranged marriage was a concept, like I would always get asked that. Uh, throughout school, like once they found out my parents had arranged marriage, they're like, "This is so beyond my own under my Western understanding of like love and marriage. Like, does this actually work? Like, do you guys hate each other? Like, you know." Uh, and so, I-, I think arranged marriages, is, you know, have their you know their pros and cons, and it's a very individual you know on the relationship and the couple. But I wanted to thwart that Western thinking of like. The arranged marriage, or oh, poor girl, like she is locked into this marriage with like an older guy who is going to misuse her and mistreat her. And this is the end of her life, you know, because she was forced into a political marriage um, in which she had no say or decision. And like the classical poor Indian arranged marriage bride did not want to do that in the Phoenix King. And I wanted Aaliyah to have that agency of like picking her suitor. So, I mean, Leo brings forth like this is you know samson like you know he is like um, almost like a military you know military king in a way uh, and but at the end of the day alito's the one who takes that decision because there's multiple suitors who have come and went but she makes a, a very calculated decision to say yes to samson because of his relationship with their uh with the antagonist uh king foreign of Janthar uh, and his his army 
So she was very political and strategic in saying yes to Samson. And I wanted her to like have fun. I wanted her to flirt. I wanted her to like understand like that she, this is all for her kingdom. But at the end of the day, that's what Alira operates on. It's that because she has been born and bred to serve her kingdom, her kingdom is a part of her identity. Without Robbins, she is not Alita Adia Roberts. It's literally her name, you know? Um, and so when she takes on Samson as her suitor, she what immediately puts you know, makes it know that she is the ruler. She is the one in power over him, uh, but she's going to enjoy it. Like, you know, she is not like some sad, you know, princess who's like, you know, married off to this like handsome suitor. It's like, no, I'm going to have fun with you. I'm going to tease you. I'm going to flirt with you. I'm going to let you know that I'm the one in power. So just wanted to change it up a little bit. And it is very clear that she's still definitely going to be the one in charge. We have like, I guess the phrase that might sometimes be used is more modern gender roles, although what that even means. Ugh. But this is very much a science fantasy, right? There is magic and there are also like hover cars. There's like melee combat and also lots of future techie things. Can you talk a little bit about that decision to make this sort of more of a science fantasy than a traditional fantasy? Yeah, well, I honestly, I think the present moment, like even though like our present moment is a blend of the past and the future, like we are talking on StreamYard right now <laughs> in two different places, North North Carolina, I'm in Texas. And we have iPhones, we have laptops, we have electric cars, and yet we still stick to the same religions that date back centuries. I'm a practicing Hindu. That has been practiced um, for centuries. It's a really, it's an age old tradition and religion. And it made me start thinking of like, you know, if humans were to progress forward, we would still keep our own faith. We will keep our religions that, you know, date back for centuries or and or we're going to create new ones. But we will always have faith and uh, a religion to go to. So that made me ask the question of like, what if we were in a super, you know, futuristic desert kingdom ruled by a religious throne? What happens then? Like, you know, and, and so I wanted to see that blend of like, you know, um, of Indian sci-fi. Also, we don't get a lot of Indian sci-fi. When we see sci-fi, it's like mostly like white characters. So I was like, you know what? I want to do Indian sci-fi. Also, Star Trek used a lot of Indian clothing, like the Gurdwaras. I was like, hello, that's from us. And so, it's really funny. Uh, this is kind of an aside, but one of the uh, art prints that's part of the book, um, that's part of the epilogue, someone saw it and they said, is this from Star Wars? I was like, no, he's wearing a Sherwani. Like that, literally from India. But Star Wars co-opted some of this stuff. So like, it looks like it's Star Wars. Um, but that's an aside. So I, I really wanted to blend, you know, the future and the, and the past because we see it in our present day moment, but I just wanted to turn it up a notch uh, by making it like, you know, there's like hover trains and and hollow pods, but there's also sling swords and game suits. And I just love like the concept of the game field. Uh, and that's something that I'm playing with a lot more in like book two and, you know, later on in the series. So we definitely have like lots of very fun tech. Um, there's also magic and a lot of the magic, just like a lot of sort of the culture is centered in fire, which is both like magically significant, culturally significant. These things obviously feed each other. Could you talk a little bit about why you decided to make fire so central and sort of the role that it plays in this story yeah so i fire has duality and that's 
what has always piqued my interest. Uh, fire is both necessary for destruction, but also for rebirth. Um, think of a forest, right? Like we learned this in like sixth grade ecology. Like, you know, we learned from the very beginning that a forest fire burns the underbrush of, you know, of a forest that allows new life to grow forth. Um, that's why some firefighters in like, you know, controlled environments create forest fires on purpose to help um, aid the forest and grow. In Hinduism, one of our, you know, Vedic gods is Agni. Uh, and Agni is a word that comes from Sanskrit and it means, you know, it, it, it means a fire god. And Agni is said to have two faces. One of destruction, like one of like that scary and like, you know, gruesome and like, you know, makes you want to hide under, underneath your bed. And the other one is welcoming. It's warm. It's like all all the happy things that fire makes you think of, like marshmallows, being on the campfire, telling stories. And so when I was thinking about the religion and like using fire as a motif for the kingdom of Ravans, I really associated with the phoenix. Um, Hinduism doesn't really have a phoenix per se, though uh, if you look at like the linguistic and um, more of like the historical roots, Garuda, who is our, you know, our um, man, eagle, uh, God, he's like the king of the birds, has similar associations with the phoenix. Um, it's said in the Mahabharata that he, you know, was born in an egg with like a very, very bright light, uh, like shining intense light. And when that light comes, it means it's the start of the end of the cosmic, it's the start of the end, which means cosmic destruction is about to happen for this era to end on Earth and a new one to come. And I was like, that's a phoenix rebirth you know rebirth destruction the cycle over and over again and so when um alina tries to learn about fire and holding fire she has to come to terms of like what fire really means um there's this misconception that the characters hold in the books of that the phoenix is a vengeful god you know that fire is destructive you, you see that a lot of in yasin's um in his chapters because he was raised uh, to believe that the phoenix is terrible. It's a shared religion, you know, um, being like a part of the aura of the scene. Um, but through Alina's perspective and through her connection with her mother, who was a devotee of, of the phoenix, um, and Alina to hold on to her mother's relationship, she continues worship worshiping the phoenix because it reminds her of her mother. And I think like and that's personal to me because I feel like I became more devout or more of like interested in Hinduism after I left for college. <laughs> Actually, after I left my family because it was my connection to home. And and, and that's similar for Alina. It's her connection to her mother. Um, and in that, she learns that Pyre isn't also isn't just destructive. It's 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 a memory. It's it's that warmth. It's that love. Um, and so, you know, of all the other elements, I think fire is like is the one that perfectly captures that duality of being both destructive but also nurturing. You mentioned as well Alina's mother, um, who died when she's quite young. So that means that both she has lost her mother and Leo has lost his partner. Um, so despite the fact that she dies long before the book starts, she's very much a presence in this story. She's also quite an important scholar. Could you talk a little bit about that character and the role that she plays in the story? Yeah, I love Anna. Um, 
I I think of all of all the characters, and this is like I just love tragedies. But of all the characters, I feel like I'm mostly associated with her. I was like, yeah, I would love to die with my books. Why not? Like you know, um, but I I love Anna uh, as a character, and you know, one because she is a beacon of warmth um, uh, and stability for Alina, um, who lost her mother, like you said, at a very young age. But also, I think she shows leo's tragedy you know before leo died uh, he very much when uh, anna was alive he very much took um advice from her like he took solace from her like she was his partner in crime you know quote unquote and he respected her and she softened his edges in a way um and was able to keep him balanced and it's when she died and he without giving a spoiler away realizes why she died that's when he starts to veer away from the religion of the phoenix that's when we start to see the down path and i think that's a tragedy because again when we talk about fate sometimes it's not it's not centered on the religion of the god it's centered on a person and for leo his faith was in anna and so when anna dies it's correlated that his faith in the phoenix also slowly dies because she was his stability point when she's gone he's like the reason she died was because of the phoenix so i am no longer you know a a a believer i will take the motions of pretending to believe because i'm the king like i am forced in a way to pretend i'm a believer to pretend that i you know uphold the throne because of this you know, this fantastical fire, but really he realizes like, no, it's all a shit. It's all a show. Uh, but I will continue the show because that is my role as king. And I, it, it, and it hurts that belief is gone. Uh, I think for him, because if it was, if it had been, maybe he would have been a gentler king, you know? Absolutely. There's also at the beginning of basically every chapter, um, one of those really fun spec fic things, which is you've got an epigraph um, of documents from the world can you talk a little bit about your inclusion of fake primary sources? Oh, I love it. So, you know, what's really funny. A reader actually DM'd me saying, like, I Googled these texts thinking that they were real things. And I realized, oh, my God, you made them all up. I was like, yes, I have a whole library of textbooks from this world. Uh, I love epigraphs in a way of, like, I think they're a good tool for world building. Like it gives you like just instantaneously like, oh, this is what the Jandari Times thinks about the Kingdom of Roberts, you know? Uh, and I was, you know, uh, a journalist for a brief period of time. I worked at my college newspaper. My first job out of college was at a financial news team. And I realized really quickly journalism wasn't for me. I am leaping. Um, but it, it really, I think being a journalist has really formed my way and perspective as a fiction writer. One in that uh, primary sources, I love including primary sources in fiction worlds because you're like, oh, it's fiction. Everything is fake. You know, like it's all made up. So let me make it. But when you add a primary source, it adds almost like a degree of credibility in a way of like, showing like the the i think the vastness of the world um like one of the texts of the great history of seon and you learn about um the different um nations the beyond robins and Jantar. like when you look at the the map in the book you're like oh my gosh there's like two continents and like there's all these other kingdoms 
that we've heard about that but we're you know we'll see later on in the trilogy but uh you see a little bit in the in the uh in the epigraphs uh, i also think they're a really good foreshadowing <laughs> like i i believe in like leaving easter eggs for the closest reader because i just feel like it's fun i was an english major and i love when i when i close read i feel like i was like gonna having a secret into the conversation with the writer so like even the first epigraph uh, on Yasin chapter one where the king said to his people we are the chosen and the people responded chosen by whom you know and it's this idea of like who who chooses us like who has that power is it a god is it a person is it you uh, and it, it really goes into it you know goes into the letter that uh, we later see in the book that I'm not going to talk about uh, without giving a spoiler but um, I, I think like a lot of the trilogy also centers about chosen by who um, but but that's at the very first of the, of the of the novel and I wanted to leave that there for like the close reader of like just like you know wink wink look back at this when you read book two and book three because it's going to apply of like chosen by who um, yeah I think it's just fun to like do world building but also like give little nuggets to like the close reader like aha you're paying attention here you know absolutely Ravance is um a desert nation as we've mentioned before and deserts are just like really an important part of this story they're important to a lot of our characters and their self-conception can you talk a little bit about the decision to set this in a desert yeah so I was born in Rajasthan India and Rajasthan is the desert state <laughs> in India. And I feel like throughout my life, I've always had a deep spiritual connection to the desert. It and kind of like it has that duality of also like of like fire. But, you know, like when you look at the thing of the desert, you think of just a dry, arid landscape. You don't think life is really teeming in the desert. Um but when you look closer, you realize actually the desert is full of life. There's, you know, and depending on what kind of deserts you go to, um, there's so many different species and animals and and people who carve a living in there. And so for me, it was in a way paying homage to Rajasthan, uh, which I love. Rajasthan literally means uh, land of the kings, um, and I wanted to bring in that duality of of the desert because i think it one it's just poetic it's spiritual it's very personal to me uh but like you said each character has their own personal conception of the desert um and how it it i feel like it, the desert almost is its own character like you know to be like you know a cliche like the landscape is its own character um but i think it really speaks for itself um and it's very much ingrained of like how Alina operates for sure. This is your debut. We already talked about a lot of the really fun things that are in this story. Is there anything that we haven't covered yet so far that you like definitely were excited to put in this book or to include? Oh, the little Bollywood Easter eggs. <laughs> I am a romantic at heart. I, I feel like I am definitely a romantic at heart. Um, and as I've grown older, I've, I've come to accept that. <laughs> but, um, I love Shah Rukh Khan movies. Like I grew up on his movies, and there's this iconic scene. Um, it actually it's been done in different of his movies, but there's one in um, Kabikushi Kabikab, which is like one of my favorite movies, where there's like a dance sequence 
and he is dancing with the love interest Gajal, um, who uh, actually some people on the internet said I look like her, and I will take that as a compliment because she is gorgeous. And she is running past him at the end of her dupatta, which is basically like this long, beautiful embroidered scarf, gets stuck on the end of his kurta. And you get this like moment where he raises his um his his sleeve and they're kinda like they have this heated moment of like gazing into each other. Uh, this also happens at Om Shanti Om with Shah Rukh Khan again and Deepika Padakorn. And so I was like, I've always lived for these moments. Let me add it to my book because I can. And so there's this moment uh, of a dance sequence, of course, where um, Alina and Yasin are dancing. They're practicing. Um, she's practicing her coronation dance for the coronation ball because we got to have a ball. Um, and as he lifts her up and lowers her down, she's trying to turn away and her dupatta gets stuck on the end of his uniform. And you have this little charged moment of like his heart is hammering as she touches his wrists and their eyes connect. And I was like, chef's kiss. That is like homage to Bollywood and SRK. So if you are a Bollywood lover, you will hopefully love that moment. And it's illustrated, which will be revealed on release day. So very excited to show that. That is extraordinarily exciting. Um, this book has so much in it. It's a lot of fun. We've really just scratched the surface. Um, and it comes out on August 29th, so Tuesday. So there's a very good chance that it is either out when you're listening to this or will be out in just a day or two. I'm very excited to let the world see this one. Um, I have been speaking with Aferna Verma about her debut novel, The Phoenix King, out, as I said, August 29th from Orbit. Thank you so much for listening, and please consider supporting us by subscribing, leaving a review, telling a friend, all that good stuff. I will speak to you soon, and for now, happy reading.